We are doing in-depth look at what is happening now as the trial of the man, the police officer, uh, Derek Chauvin, who killed uh, 46-year-old George Floyd on May 25th, uh, 2020. And uh, here setting up, we're going to be hearing from uh, a woman known as the people's attorney, uh, Nana Jumphy. And to just set that up and, and to get her comments, let us go to some of the key moments from the defense defense's opening statement. Keep in mind, this is the defense now who is being backed um, by police organizations uh, with something like a dozen lawyers and a million dollars. Let's hear what the defense had to say. I want to talk about reason and common sense and how that applies to the evidence that you're about to see during the course of this trial. Reason is an idea that wholly permeates our law our legal system, and it forms the foundation. And you will see and hear that repeatedly throughout the course of this trial. What would a reasonable police officer do? What is a reasonable use of force? Common sense tells us that we need to examine the totality of the circumstances to determine the meaning of evidence and how it can be applied to the questions of reasonableness of actions and reactions. It is nothing more than that. There is no political or social cause in this courtroom. And you will see and hear everything that these officers and Mr. Floyd say to each other. You will see that three Minneapolis police officers could not overcome the strength of Mr. Floyd. Mr. Chauvin stands 5'9", 140 pounds. Mr. Floyd is 6'3", weighs 223 pounds. Mr. Floyd does end up on the street and appeared to continue to struggle to these officers, so much so that they considered applying what's called the maximal restraint technique. It used to be called the hobble or the hog tie. Mr. Chauvin used his knee to pin Mr. Floyd's left shoulder blade and back to the ground and his right knee to pin Mr. Floyd's left arm to the ground. You will see in here that a crowd begins to develop watching and recording officers initially fairly passive. As the situation went on, the crowd began to grow angry. And remember, there's, there's more to the scene than just the office, what the officers see in front of them. There are people behind them. There are people across the street. There are cars stopping, people yelling. There, are, there is a growing crowd and what officers perceive to be a threat. Well, let's welcome uh, Nana Jumphy back to Sojourner Truth, attorney, consultant, educator, activist. She is the president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers. She's also the executive director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, known as Baji, attorney Jamfi. She is known as the people's attorney by the communities uh, she serves. Uh, Nana Jamfi, thank you for joining us. Thank you so very much for having me, Margaret. Well, Nan, I know you're, you're you're following this, and actually, in in that clip, I mean, you heard the um, the attorney representing uh, Chauvin uh, calling it a hog tie. You know, he really didn't have to make that reference, but he did. I think that said quite a lot. And then again, the whole thing about the fear of the black body. 
you know, uh, Floyd is 6'3", 223 pounds. And after all, this poor little white police officer, he was only 5'9", and 140 pounds. Um, anyway, Nana, your reaction to what you just heard um, from the defense. So this is, you know, typical. It reminded me when I was hearing it of a police report that we had from a case here in Los Angeles when they had the um, celebration of the National Days um, in honor of Mike Brown in 2014. I'm sure, Margaret, you remember how there were folks who blocked the freeway, like the 10 freeway right there where the 101 is here in Los Angeles. And there were seven people, and one of them was a brother, tall brother, um, much in the, the George Floyd vein, uh, except he had locks on his head, so you know he was super scary to them. And uh, in the police report describing what happened, where it says weapons involved, they put physical presence, right? Throughout the report, they described him as calm, as quiet, and yet they still put, this is LAPD, that his physical presence was a weapon. Mm. And I think that says it all, right? Um, black people... Um, are considered to be weapons just in their blackness. And so had George Floyd been four, you know, eight, (laughs) they still would have talked about his physical self, his physical stature as being a reason for us to believe that he was, you know, super strong, the savage, who's able to throw police officers off of him with a single bound, right? And I think that it's important that we continue to lift up all of the ways in which this case, in which police violence speaks to the efforts by um, folks in this country to continue to deny the humanity of black people. You know, we don't feel pain. We can't be... Uh, subdued without extreme violence, we must be feared. All of that is just a rep- repetition of you know the the what they've put out here um, about our folks and have used against us in the context of state violence and state sponsored violence from the beginning. Yeah, and going back to uh, Thomas Jefferson, the so-named founding uh, father, um, who himself was a a slave owner and a rapist of a 14-year-old Sally Hemings that he had children um, with. But he was going on about uh, how black people, we just don't feel pain. And and, and also, we, 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 we don't grieve the way white people are uh, grieved. Meanwhile, they're snatching, you know, children that you've given birth to and, um, you know, sending them off. So that, you know, and, and even today, if you look at the disparity in healthcare among black people and, and the fact that if we're in pain, you go to the doctor and you're in pain, they just don't believe you. Or, the, you know, with uh, George Floyd saying, I can't breathe. And, and the response being, well, you know, you sure have enough breath to be saying what you're saying. You know what I mean? It's it's that really Absolutely. continuum that you're talking Absolutely. about, Nana. Absolutely. It's that continuum. And, and so we shouldn't be surprised. And we know, I mean, this is not the first case. It's not the second. It's not the tenth. We already know before the defense counsel for Chauvin testify or spoke 
fit his arguments. We already know what he's going to say. We already know. They've, or, they've set some of this up ahead of time in terms of, you know, discussing what could be, you know, why is it that George Floyd could suddenly be some superhuman person that needs to, or really subhuman person that needs to be um, subdued. We've already gotten all of the um, prompts not just from what we've seen happen in these cases, but from all these propaganda shows, right, that are permeate our TV screens um, that talk about all the things that reasonable officers need to do and how reasonable officers are in these situations. Um, it, it's all been set up, Margaret. It's all been teed up. And so it really takes an intentional effort, and it's going to take an intentional effort on the part of jurors to separate what we've been taught, to separate what we've been programmed, um, to separate what um, they're being told by the defense from what they actually see, what they actually hear, what they actually know about what happened to our brother George Floyd. Yeah, and I mean, also the the treatment of, I mean, you know, I I always uh, go back to the shootings that happened um, in the church of uh, nine black people being killed and then the police officer uh, taking the young man responsible for, you know, to to Burger King or something, you know, to get him something to eat because he was hungry. And now this um, white guy who killed eight people, uh, including six Asian women outside Atlanta, now they're saying, well, you know, he's just mentally ill and, you know, he had a bad day and, you know, he had this these sexual hang-ups, you know, et cetera. So there's always that kind of excuse given. Meanwhile, with George Floyd, basically he was accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill. And for that, that cost him his life. Eric Garner accused of, of allegedly selling loose cigarettes, and that also cost him his life. So that kind of double standard, I imagine, is part of what people are looking at to see is justice possible for black people uh, in the United States. And I I, I wondered if you wanted to to comment on all that as well. So I'm an abolitionist. What that means is that I don't want there to be police. I don't want there to be jails and I don't want there to be prisons. I don't want that for me, for you, for our kids or for Chauvin. I don't want that for anybody because it's like the death penalty. As long as one person gets killed under the death penalty, we know that it's disproportionately going to affect our people and that other people are going to be killed. And, And in the same way, for me and for those of us who are abolitionists, we can't say that we want to dismantle a system and then call on the system to step up. Um, I think that what those double standards clearly demonstrate is that, in fact, the police state is not what's going to keep black people safe. And it is a state that cannot be reformed. We're not going to reform the police. We're not going to, you know, train them differently. Again, Margaret, you and I have been in this a long time. Some of what people are talking about now, including what's in the Justice and Policing Act, are things from 30 years ago, from Christopher Commission, from community policing, that we already see are not going to work. They don't happen. And yet we kind of still expect that um, to happen, that someday cops are going to look up and treat our people um, um, humanely. That's not what they're designed to do. 
They are designed to treat black people as if they were escaped enslaved Africans, and they're going to continue to do that. And so there is no justice, no, that's going to be found in this system. And, you know, we need to be clear that this system needs to be dismantled, that we need to find a completely other way. That's another show. Um, But with respect to this case, as we're looking at this case, let's understand that justice is not going to be achieved, even if there's a verdict and Chauvin gets the maximum time that he could get at the highest charge possible. That will still not be justice. It will not change anything about policing. It will not change anything about the safety that, that black people feel and must feel with respect to policing. It will uh, be an individual situation that will have no systemic and institutional effect. Right. So what what you're talking about, uh, Nana Jumphy, uh, our attorney uh, here, the people's attorney, Nana Jumphy, is a complete systemic change. And on the meanwhile, we know that George Floyd's family, there, there are many black people across the United States and around the world that are looking and are saying, well, justice itself is on trial in the United States. And is it uh, possible? You're saying that within this system <laughs> that we are under, this capitalist system that we're under, it's not really possible and that we have to look for alternative ways and that you're right, that is a totally other uh, show. But um, what about the demands about defunding uh, the police? There's a lot of misunderstanding about what that means. Um, That was a demand in in Minneapolis. And in fact, the Minneapolis City Council members had promised to dismantle the city's police department and create a public safety system. Now, that hasn't happened. And there was backtracking, you know, on that. But you have seen cities like uh, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Seattle, Milwaukee, uh, Philly, and others, uh, about a dozen cities that have initially reduced uh, police um, spending. And then you mentioned H.R. 7120, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that was introduced by Congresswoman Karen Bass in June of 2020. It passed the House. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens with it in the Senate. But uh, meanwhile, there are these interim measures of people really trying to uh, do something to, to try to save the lives of black people. Thoughts on this, Nana? And there are many efforts. Some of them are efforts, I think, that are moving us in the, the direction of abolition, such as the efforts that have made up in Oakland, where they were able, Cat Brooks and the Anti-Police Terror Project and another project that they're working with, with um, nurses and other medical folks there, have been able to get the city of Oakland to agree to enter a contract um, with community groups and community organization to take cases or to take calls that are dealing with, for example, mental health breakdowns. And so that is actually moving something away from the police. It's not police-like. It's not diet police. It is totally community-ran. And so we do see that. I think that there, the other efforts, or there are many other efforts, including the Justice and Policing Act, some of the efforts to defund in L.A. and other places that really are more reform-oriented, meaning that at the end of the day, they serve to 
try to create a legitimized police force, like a sanitized police force, a kinder and gentler police force. And so obviously for those of us that want no police force, that's not the direction we're trying to go in. We're trying to go into a dismantling space. Um, I think with respect to the defund in particular, the moving of funds away from the police really has, you know, doesn't have a lot of effect unless it also includes the moving of funds in ways that defang the police. In other words, take away these weapons, you know, demilitarize, um, and in ways that dismantle, actually dismantling projects and programs. People would be surprised how many programs that are supported by their city, their county, their state, have police pieces in them that become part of the law enforcement budget. And so until we actually begin to defang the police, to remove the police uh, from these spaces in the process of dismantling as well as defunding, we're still going to find ourselves in spaces in which the police are alive and well, continuing to do what they were created to do. Yeah, and uh, just quickly, we're almost out of time there, but a couple of things on the international front. Um, it's been reported of a, a Salvadoran uh, woman, a, a migrant, who was killed in Mexico by Mexican police in a similar way of George Floyd, you know, the the, the knee on the neck. And uh, meanwhile, in the UK, there are protests today. There have been about people against a police bill of increasing uh, the powers against the police. So it, it does seem that what happened happens here in the United States and and the, the kind of widespread uh, protests that happen as a result of George Floyd has had um, a ripple effect in bringing out what is happening to some of our brown sisters and brothers in the United States, but also outside of the United States and other parts of the world. Uh, just your final uh, thoughts here, Nana. So I would say that if we look in those places, Mexico, if we look at Britain, if we look at Brazil and other places, people have always been on the ground fighting, right? And so, um, you know, at, at, with respect to the police, there have been rebellions in England, as you know. There have been, you know, the talks of this, uh, what's happening with the police in Mexico and Central America, South America, the continent of Africa, and SARS, right? All of that. So I don't think it's new. I think that there is often an attempt. To, for, by the United States to make itself the standard, and that many folks follow the U.S. in terms of making the standard. But I think that, you know, the, the push of revolution, the push of the, of the people on the ground against the tyranny of the police is not a U.S.-rooted thing. It's not something that you just see here, but something that we're seeing all over the world. And I think people are just making more connections as we have the technology and other pieces to make that happen. Right, and we saw that in the uprisings in Nigeria as well. Well, we're out of time, but Nana, I do promise we will uh, come back and do, focus on abolition and, and what it means and hope to have you back and Ruthie Gilmore and other people who are part of that abolitionist movement because there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding and questions on that. But we appreciate you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for joining us, Nana Jumphy. Thank you.